Well, if I have not met you yet, my name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor is traveling this week on denominational business as well as going to see his mom. So coming back today, I think, or tomorrow. We are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are up to chapter 4. So if you got a bulletin when you came in, there should be a sermon outline. I'm reading from the ESV version. 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter. Chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, Paul is speaking, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love 
and a spirit of gentleness. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, that our lives would be conformed to what we have understood. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's Sunday, and after church, it's going to be time to have lunch. Some people head to Moe's or Wegmans. Some people head out, eat together, families. Uh, a lot of people just go back home, fix something. I know some make uh, grilled cheese. Uh, some get chili ready to watch some football. I found out that uh, one of the most delicious, juicy meals that you can have after you leave church is roast pastor. You, have you ever had that? I've had it before, maybe have too. It's where in the spirit of discernment and offering valuable insights to those around you, uh, you, go every, you go over everything that the pastor did and said and uh, rate his performance. Uh, you could talk about the pastor's clothes or his beard or his car or his kids. It's easy to critique, critique whether he was attentive to you or if he only kind of superficially listened when you talked to him afterwards. And then you can really go for the juicy stuff is whether his sermon really lives up to the Tim Keller sermon that you just listened to or the Ravi Zacharias lecture. Dan Allender talks in his book, Leading with a Limp, about how he visited a church where he overheard some of the conversations after the service. And he said one man complained about the pastor's sermon because he felt that it was very dumbed down and there wasn't a lot of meat for him and other smart guys like him. A couple minutes later, he heard somebody else talking, and he said, man, he was complaining that the pastor made his sermons just too theologically complex, and that it would be nice to be able to understand him. And Allender commented that every week, the pastor enters the pulpit with a rope around one arm, and then another around his leg, and perhaps one around his neck. When he begins his sermon, clusters of his community gather around one rope, or another, and begin to tug and pull. By the time the pastor finishes a half-hour sermon, he's been drawn and quartered, but must still greet everyone at the end of the service. Now, this is not exactly the picture of what the Apostle Paul was facing. He wasn't living in Corinth at the time when he wrote 1 Corinthians. So people weren't criticizing him on, the, on his sermons necessarily on a weekly basis. Uh, as you read in Acts 18, he visited, he stayed, and uh, built up a church there, uh, preached the gospel in about a year and a half, but then he left, went to Ephesus and other places. And in the meantime, the people of Corinth had been ministered to by other people and had developed a bit of pride in their wisdom, their position. And they had started whispering about how 
Paul wasn't really that great of a guy. We can, we can really pick this up through all the first four chapters. That Paul wasn't really impressive, and he didn't give them what they needed. They had roast pastor probably at a lot of their meals about him, and maybe all that time he had spent making tents while he was with them proved that he wasn't really a great pastor, or that when he suffered and was beaten or imprisoned, that that proved that the Lord's favor wasn't really with him. So Paul begins this passage, this chapter, referring to his and Apollos and the other apostles, the contrasting roles that they fulfilled, the roles of being servants and stewards. So let me read verses 1 through 5 again. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, so early on, Paul identifies that they have two roles, these apostles. The word, the first word we see is servant. And usually we think of uh, those that know a little bit about Greek, there's a word diakonos, translated deacon usually. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. He uses hyperetes, which gives the image of a slave galley ship. And on the, the bottom level of a slave ship would be the under rowers, rowing together at the master's commands. If you've seen... I think either of the Ben-Hur, the old one or the, the remake, you know the scene where he's sent to the galley ship and is row, has to row. That's the picture of what the servant was. But then four words later, he uses another word that is translated steward. And this is a word which refers to someone who supervised and administrated a large estate. He was usually the highest of the hired help, the one that the master entrusted with running everything and, and everyone. So Paul is saying that he and Apollos and the other apostles, in other words, the pastors, are their, their servants and stewards. And I think what we do with these two ideas is that we see the extremes of how we might treat pastors. On the one hand, maybe we treat some as superstars. Put them up on a pedestal, even though we know pedestals are made to be knocked off from, right? And so Paul says we are under rowers. We are servants. Compared to Christ, we have no authority. We're just doing what we're told. So don't put the pastors the ministry leaders on pedestals. But neither, I think Paul is saying, 
should we judge them too harshly since they are heads of the household? That they are performing the high tasks of running things for the master. That they're in charge of the other servants and have been given high tasks. So as you treat your spiritual leaders, these are the things you need to think of. And of course, this congregation does a stellar job of not puffing up its pastors too much or tearing them down unnecessarily. This is all very hypothetical. I can see some of you are going to leave. What was the deal with Dorse going on and on about how we treat the pastors and roast them? There's no hidden agenda. I promise. I'm not uh, calling anyone out secretly. I'm just trying to help us understand the text. All right? These people are wonderful. They're thoughtful, not quarrelsome. Essentially related to this, Paul is asking the question, who can judge me? Do I look to other people to judge? Do I judge myself? Or is it all the Lord's judgment? And listen, anyone should be able to give pastors constructive criticism, right? A difference of opinion that he should listen to, consider, maybe change as a result. And I also think a pastor constantly evaluates and reevaluates the way he does things, uh, the things that he does, so that he can become more and more effective. I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about necessarily. He's talking about the ultimate judgment on his ministry and on his life. And only the Lord can bring that kind of judgment. The people of Corinth may think that Paul has all the wrong motives. And Paul himself may think that he's completely innocent of any ulterior motives or desires, but only the Lord knows for sure and will bring to light all of the hidden motivations on the day of judgment and bring commendation, rewards for those who are faithful. Now, if you're like me, that might be a little unsettling in the sense that you could be laboring under false delusions for much of your life. And the Lord will pull the rug out from under you and show you where you were wrong on the day of judgment. That's a sobering thought. I want to remind you, though, if you read his word and follow it and trust it and make it truth for your life, you will please him. Being faithful to the gospel is much more important than pleasing yourself or pleasing other people. We all have to remind ourselves not to rely too much on the approval or disapproval of others. And don't rely too heavily on self-justification. As Paul says, it's required that we are faithful. Live your life to please him. Two verses from 1 Thessalonians remind us of that. 2.4 says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
And then chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul's constant encouragement to continue on pleasing the Lord. Well, the next section, Paul moves to describing the differences between the Corinthians and the apostles. And it's the contrasting descriptions of the strong and the weak. And of course, we put those in quotes as as we remember the first couple chapters that the wisdom of God looks foolish to the world and the, the weakness of God is actually strength. So let's read with that idea again, verses 6 through 13. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. One of my favorite Christian bands from the 90s, if you know this name, was Five Iron Frenzy. Do they, they're not still around. I saw a hand back there. They used to do a musical genre called ska. I don't know if anybody still does that. I'm really dating myself here. But enjoyed it. Uh, they broke up eventually, as all 90s bands did, I think. And, uh, but their, their lead singer was a real character named Reese Roper. And he went and became a staff member of a church in Denver, Colorado. And the church, was when it was starting out, they decided to find a real seeker-friendly, desirable name that would be inoffensive and inviting. So they called it Scum of the Earth Church. <laughs> I think they wanted to identify with those who have no spiritual pride. Right? On their website, they say, we, we don't actually think God sees us as scum. But we don't want to be part of looking down on anyone else. They didn't want to be like the Corinthians. Looking down and Paul saying, okay, you got me. I'm the scum of the earth. It's the epitome of how low the world, and I think the Corinthians, consider him and his fellow apostles. 
Now, if you didn't notice, this is the section where the gloves come off, right? Paul is rebuking the arrogance of the Corinthians. They have forgotten both the many ways that God has blessed them, and they've been puffed up and boasting about themselves, maybe what they've achieved, as well as the sacrifices that the apostles made on their behalf. They've embraced the worldly categories of what makes someone impressive and ideal. But as we've already seen Paul talk about early in the book, the world's wisdom and ideals count for very little in the light of God's requirements. And so Paul just uses sarcasm here, I think, to avoid unleashing more direct and angry words. And I don't think that, but I don't, I don't think Paul is exaggerating necessarily or complaining about the difficulties that the apostles faced. The image that he gives in verse 9, God exhibited us apostles like men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world. Uh, that's, that's the image of the conquering Roman general who just won the big battle. And he comes home, and the city throws a parade, and he brings his army through the streets to great shouts and acclaim. And at the end of the procession were some of the conquered, captured people being dragged through the streets and paraded because they were about to be sent, most likely, to the arena to die. And so Paul says, that's what it feels like. That's what the apostles have been. Church planting and foundational apostolic ministry in Paul's day was really hard. You get that sense. It's still hard today. I looked into it. It's hard. Hug a church planter. Uh, but today, it's a little different, right? I mean, church planters have their houses. They are paid. They get a good salary, get to, get to buy lots of meals. It's hard because we want results. We want the 100-person church and full service and all of the ministry teams filled out within three years. We want success. Back then, they started from scratch, right? With everyone. They, they had to be true evangelists. The only people who were going to be part of their church were ones that they won to the faith. There weren't a bunch of converts from other, or transfer, they were converts. They weren't transfer members from other churches, right? You were winning people to Christ, and only the ones who had completely bought into the faith were going to be part of your church, which made the work exciting, yeah, but difficult. So many, so much pushback and conflict and danger. Paul lists, and he's listed in other places, uh, that they were itinerant, sometimes homeless, separated from their loved ones, often hungry. They were disrespected, slandered, all those things. Not to mention that some of them would literally be paraded through the streets and taken to the gladiator arenas to be killed 
And so he contrasts the Corinthians who didn't have to suffer like the apostles did, who felt that maybe that was a sign that they were blessed, that they had it right, that they were doing something right. And, and so the question, was that a sign of God's favor or a condemnation that they were a little too comfortable and not really taking part in the ministry? Paul is pointing out that they have a distorted perspective, that Christ's kingdom does not come through the flattering speech of sinful men and women seeking to avoid persecution. Now, in application, I'm not going to contrast, as Paul did, your cushy lives with my difficult life as a pastor, because that would be ridiculous. Frankly, I don't suffer for my faith very much. But I want to remind us that persecutions and trials could be part of our call. Maybe for some of us already. We might be called to suffer. We need to be ready and remain faithful when it does. As Mark emphasized, we need to be ready that when we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We love. We ask the Lord to bear us through it. We can look to the apostles, to those who have gone before us, to the reformers who were threatened to being burned at the stake, to the missionaries who took much danger in spreading the gospel to the far ends of the earth even and especially to the persecuted church today. We should be grateful. We should be inspired. And we don't automatically equate, as the Corinthians did, our comfort and worldly blessing with God's blessing. And the opposite error of seeing those who are suffering for the Lord looked down on and slandered as though they were under God's judgment. So Paul gets his point across. And heading into verse 14 and the end of the chapter, Paul's tone shifts as he explores his relationship to the Corinthians and how he is to relate to them. And it's the spiritual father's contrast of love and anger, correction. Let's read that again, verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So here, Paul drops the sarcasm now and becomes affectionate and tender. They are his 
beloved children. He is their spiritual father because he was the first to preach the gospel to them. And as such, he uses three parenting techniques in this last section. I got this all from David Strain, the pastor of First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi. The first thing he says is, watch me, I'll show you how to do it right. Right? That can be, that can be a great parenting technique. Sometimes when I'm teaching my kids, I can't describe something. I just say, just watch me carefully. Paul tells them straight out, be imitators of me. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? It's not that Paul thinks it's all about him. It's very much that he wants them to know Christ and be more Christ-like. And since Paul presses on to be as Christ-like as he can be, they have a living example to emulate. Every one of us has someone looking up to us. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or even a parent for people to look at your faith as an example. You are a spiritual example to someone. You may have heard the old saying, your life might be the only Bible that someone will read. It's worth examining ourselves. If we can say to someone else, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that's the first thing, the first parenting technique Paul uses. The second one is, hey, I'm going to send your older brother to show you how to do it right, right? I know a lot of kids hate it when their parents say, can't you be more like Johnny? But how helpful is it to parents when an older, more experienced sibling is willing to help and to walk alongside a younger sibling to figure things out, right? They've been through it, whatever the problem is. They've worked through these situations. If they're patient, they can walk the younger sibling through it sometimes in a way that a parent can't. And so Paul says something like that. I'm sending Timothy. He'll help you figure things out too. Timothy's his top guy, right? He knows how things are run. He's seen it work in different churches. He'll help get things straight. And again, you could be a spiritual older brother or sister, that Christian mentor that helps others, even someone the pastor send in. Hey, I'm sending you this person. Number three, Paul uses a parenting technique I'm sure we've never used. Don't make me come over there. Sometimes on the phone. It's, don't make me come home from work early. Paul says, if the Lord wills it, I'm coming to see you. And it's a toss-up whether I'm coming with a smile and words of encouragement or whether I'm bringing the verbal and theological hammer, right, to straighten you guys out. In fact, he lets them choose. Which one do you want? Do you want the rod or do you want me to be gentle? And this would have been probably a rough way to end the letter. I'm sure the Corinthians were very glad to find out there was another 12 chapters tacked on. 
If you go and read 2 Corinthians again, though, you'll see, you'll remember that some of these issues don't get resolved quickly. Paul is still defending his apostleship and dealing with the criticisms. And this is a good place to start to remind this church of where it has misunderstood the gospel and how it is lived out in the world and in the church and what their expectations of their leaders and one another are. I want to circle back to one verse that we went pretty quickly through, actually just one sentence of verse 7. Because as something jumped out at Mark as he was reading it, This is what jumped out at me, I think the first time I went through it. What do you have that you did not receive? Quick phrase, but so full. I remember one time, my family, uh, growing up, I was probably nine or ten, my brothers, we were, my parents said, okay, everybody say one thing you're thankful for, you know, rather than just one person praying for the meal. And I remember it got to one of my brothers who will remain nameless. And he said, I can't think of anything. He's probably in a bad mood. And so I'm sorry, I just smirked and blew it off. But I think later I was thinking, even at 10, I was like, really? You can't think of anything? Because when I really sit down to think about my life, there's like no end to what I'm thankful for. Because all of life is a gift. You didn't get any of this stuff in your life by yourself. Sure, you might have earned a degree. You might have started a business. There's things you accomplish, achieve. Granted, that's great. But your very life and the circumstances surrounding it were given to you by God's good pleasure. The fact that you have air to breathe, that you exist for one more second on this earth is because God is pleased to give it to you. Not to mention that he's showered you with rich relationships, material blessings, all these good things that come from above. And furthermore, more importantly, there's nothing that you've gained spiritually that was not given to you. The theologian St. Augustine saw this whole, the whole doctrine of grace in this one sentence. What do you have that you did not receive? No person knows God on his own. No one can save herself. It's all revealed and given. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin. That's all. God does the rest. He chose you from the foundation of the world to be his. He guided you in life, and in his sovereign timing, he revealed himself to you. He allowed you to hear the gospel at an age that you would understand it, and the Holy Spirit changed your heart from a dead heart, bent on sin, to a living heart that is alive and able to receive his truth. Jesus accomplished all the work of salvation through first his perfect sinless life that kept the law in your place and then dying on the cross 
and God raising him from the dead. And as he died on that cross, taking on the weight and curse of your sin and its punishment so that you don't have to be separated from God in eternity. We sang, my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, is free indeed. What do you have that you did not receive? It's a perfect rhetorical question for the Corinthians to rebuke their spiritual pride and remind them to live their lives in thankfulness. And it's the perfect question for us today to remind us that we have been given everything. And God calls us to be both servants and stewards of his good gifts and of the mysteries of the gospel. And all who acknowledge that they are the scum of the earth who deserve nothing, but in Christ are made heirs of the heavenly things, said, Amen. Take a moment to pray as you reflect on this as the chorale comes up for our final song. And I will close us in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this book. Thank you for Paul's letters to the Corinthians and the relationship that he had with them and the ways that he guided and steered them that we can learn from. As we think through this text, we may see ourselves in some areas more than others. God, I pray that you would rebuke any spiritual pride in us that looks down on others. God, I pray that we would not justify ourselves through others' words, through our own evaluation, but ultimately strive to be servants, to be stewards who are accountable only to the master. I pray that we are striving to please you And in doing that, we love one another. God, I pray that you'd prepare us for trials, for persecution. We've experienced some, I'm sure, already. But we may be called to sacrifice for your kingdom. And it may be painful, as it was for Paul and the early apostles. I pray that you would bear us up through that. I pray that we would look around this church and see those that we can love, be spiritual fathers and older brothers too, and encourage in the truth. Lord, help us to share the love that you pour out on us. Pour it out to others. 
It is nothing that we have done, nothing that we have made happen. You give us all the good gifts in our lives. May we acknowledge them, be grateful, and pour them out. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.